Well, today, right here, right in this place, we are going to be opening our Bibles together and taking a look at probably the most quoted work ever in recorded human history. Think about that for a minute. Let's turn to John 3.16. And as you're, as you're turning there, if you have a Bible, um, let's, let's reflect on this for a second. Out of everything that's ever been written in human history, I, I, there might be something, I just can't think of it. This may be, what we're going to look at today, this may be the most quoted, most translated, most memorized, most talked about passage ever in recorded history. Isn't that crazy? We're going to look at it today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'd love to send you home with one free today. We have a stack of them right there at the welcome table. Please take one home. Um, this book is like no other book. All right, here we go. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Those are the words that some people have given their life to making sure that it is put out there. This is um, words that, are, that people, are, even right now as we speak, are trying to translate into every known language there is. Um, these are amazing words. And so what we're going to do today is to try to, to dig into this. Um, let me share a little bit before we start the actual process of digging in. Uh, for those of you who are new, we started, uh, three weeks ago, we started a brand new series here. Uh, we're in a season what's called, that's called Lent. It's a, a season that the church has, has created to, um, to, to prepare us for Easter. So in these weeks leading up to Easter, there's a season called Lent. And one of the things that we try to do as a church, and we're going to keep doing a better job of, is every Lent spend that time really looking at the life of Jesus. We're always talking about the Christ, but, but during Lent, we really want to look at his life. And the way we're doing it this time is we're using the book of John, the writings of John. And so that's where we've been. And two weeks ago, we looked at one of the revelations that came from John, and that was this, uh, this, this revelation that, um, that this all-powerful, almighty God who revealed himself on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai in clouds and thunder and all that, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became someone that we could go fishing with. So that, that was this huge revelation that, that we looked at a couple weeks ago. And last week, um, Eric Nelson uh, brought another one of John's revelations, and that is these miraculous, wonderful things that Jesus did while he was on earth. They were more than miracles. They were signs. They were signs that pointed us to the character of God. They were also signs that pointed us to our deeper needs. So that was another revelation we looked at. Well, we're going to look at two revelations today. And the first one is this. Both of them come out of John 3.16 and the verses that follow. Here's the first one. I'd encourage you to write this down, even though most of us, if not all of us, have heard this before. Please write this down. God loves the world. That's a revelation that John gave us in John 3.16. Now, again, it might not sound shocking to those of you who grew up in the United States. This was a revelation like no other revelation. In fact, this revelation of God sending his son was so significant, human history is divided over it. From B.C. to A.D. No matter what anyone else tells you, that was the original intent in dividing up 
our history along that timeline was the, was the, the Christ coming into the world. They don't know for sure of what date it was supposed to be, but that was the intent behind dividing history. That's how significant it is. Our calendar is divided. Human history over God sending his son into our world. That's a big deal, big deal, big deal. God loved the world. Now, this idea was a revelation to folks. This was a revelation. And again, maybe it doesn't seem like it to us, but let me start to unpack this a little bit. Maybe it'll become clear why this, is, this was a revelation for, for folks. Let's start by talking about this idea of the world. When we think of the world, we, we, you know, at least for me, I picture the earth, you know, and everything in it. And you'd be thinking, well, why would God not love the world? Well, in John's writings, here I'm, I'm quoting one of my uh, scholars that I looked at. In John's writings, this world, this word world that comes from the Greek word cosmos, it wasn't a reference to the natural world of trees, animals, and plants, a world defended by the Sierra Club and Greenpeace. For John... Cosmos used 78 times in this gospel, meaning the book of John that we're looking at, 24 times in his letters. It is the realm of humanity arrayed in opposition to God. Let me, let me say a little more on that. So when John is saying God loved the world, he's not saying God loved the plants and God loved the animals. Does God love the plants and the animals? Yes. Can you look in the Bible and find that God loves the plants and the animals? Yes. You can find that. But that's not what John's talking about here. What, what John's talking about here is this revelation from God through John that God loves those who don't love God back. And that's quite a revelation. For the Jewish audience, that would have been a significant revelation because they had grown up, at least with an understanding, if they had been listening really, really careful, they would have seen that God had intended them to be a light to the whole world. But for most of them that were just listening to most of the stuff... They had an idea that God loved us, the chosen people, especially when we were doing what God wanted us to do. God loves us. We get that. What do you mean that God loves them? Who are in opposition to God's plans and purposes. So for the you know, early Jewish readers, many of them, would, most of them, I would, I would say, would have been extremely confused by that. For other people of the day, they would have been confused as well. For the secular thinkers, they had this idea of this logos, this perfect divine reason, but, but it wasn't really personal, and, and how would it love, and what would that even look like? So this would have been a revelation for them. For others who had different ideas of gods and deities, if you ever study some of these ancient gods and deities, they're not gods of love like we know love, you know? They're, they're fickle, they, 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 they change, they, they a lot of times like to just mess with people, you know? And so this idea of, of God as loving those in opposition to God, that would have been perplexing at best. And as I was reflecting on John 3.16 this week, it, the, the thought occurred to me again that I think we inoculate people against how momentous it is that God loves the world. Because most of us are like, oh, of course God loves the world. If we can say in our, in our hearts or our minds, of course God loves the world, I think there's one of two things that's wrong with us. And I'm putting me in here too, because I can, of course God loves the world. If it's easy for you to believe that God loves the world, I think one of two things or, or both are probably true. Either one, you fail to grasp God's glory, or two, you fail to grasp sin's significance. Because when you see God for who he is, you begin to go, who are we that he's even mindful of us? And when you grasp 
that sin is more than a mistake, but it is rebellion against the king of kings. You begin to realize it's a big deal that God would love the world. I tried to come up with some examples, and like any example, um, especially the ones that I give, um, like any example, any analogy, it breaks down. But let me just give you a couple examples that might maybe stretch some of you um, who are thinking, well, of course God should love the world, and why can't he just forgive us when we say we're sorry? Um, One example, I think I've given it before, that I heard that I never forgot, was when someone said, imagine there's a person, and you see this person tear a, a limb off of a small tree. Would you think that person's evil? I wouldn't think that person's evil. They said, okay, what about if that same person tore a limb off of an insect? Then, then I'm like, okay, maybe that, that person, they got issues. You know? Well, what if that same person tore a limb off of a puppy? Now I'm like, that person's definitely got issues. Definitely got issues. And they said, what if that same person pulled a limb off of a baby, human baby. Well, then that person, that person needs to get locked up. Same person, same act, but the transgression was against what we would consider something of greater value. Extrapolate that up to God. When we sin against God, it is it is like sinning against no other, like no other. And this is just one of many passages that speak to this idea of God. God is God. Isaiah 46, verses 5 and 9. To whom will you liken me? This is God asking this rhetorically. To whom will you liken, liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? For I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. And, and that's why God can't just, we can't just say we're sorry. To God, because this is an offense that merits more than that. This is rebellion against the King of Kings. And it warrants a, a price that we just can't pay on our own. So here's the second of my two analogies. This one might be more of a stretch, but hopefully it illustrates what I'm trying to get across here. The idea that, that something is required rather than just us saying we're sorry, something greater is required. Let's just say that there's a giant asteroid and it's coming towards earth it's going to collide with the earth and it's going to blow us all up all right really is it true no i'm just it's just an example okay um so the 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 asteroid's coming to earth right it's coming to earth it's going to it's going to kill everybody it's going to kill everybody but some people band together some really smart people with means band together and they create this missile that's going to go into outer space and destroy the asteroid and save us all okay so the missile's all ready to go and, I mean, you want to go see the missile because this is, I mean, they're saving all humankind. So, so you go there and you're waiting for the missile to go off and you're kind of bored. So you pull out your cell phone and you're playing Angry Birds. And something from your cell phone interferes with the guidance system of the missile. And so when the missile blasts off, it turns and it hits the moon and blows up the moon. So now rocket's gone and moon is blown up. I told you it's a stretch, but <laughs> work with me here. So now as you look at the blown up moon and you realize the rocket's gone, if you say you're sorry, does that make it better? 
No, because the asteroid's still coming, right? Someone's got to rebuild a missile. Someone's got to fix the moon. Can you rebuild the missile? Do you have a trillion dollars to, to, to fix the missile? No, but someone's got to pay that price if we're going to get saved. Can you fix the moon? No, but I'd imagine that would have consequences on the earth if the moon blew up. And whatever those consequences would be besides tides, um, they, then, then someone's got to fix that. Otherwise, you saying you're sorry doesn't, doesn't fix it. There's still a, some kind of price that needs to be paid, something that needs to happen. And again, every analogy breaks down, but my point in the story is there's a price that you can't pay for rebelling against the holy God, whether it was by design, whether it was through ignorance. It's just the way it is. If the Bible is true, and I believe it is, you can't pay that price. You can't fix that problem. The only one who could fix the problem was God. He was the only one with the means, with the capacity. And he chose to do so. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's part of what's being communicated here. Now, most of us grew up with an understanding of, yep, and I referenced this earlier, that you know Jesus loves us. In fact, we have a little song that many of us learned. It goes, Jesus loves me, this I know. And how's it finished? For the tells me. Very good. Yeah, guys, you should be in an Easter choir. Were you listening? All right. Um, yes, Jesus loves us. The Bible tells us so. And most of us grew up with that. Here's one example of many. Let's take a look. The Bible does tell us that Jesus loves us. This is out of the, the same book of John that we've been looking at. If we just flip ahead to chapter 11, here's one of many passages where we see that Jesus loves us. Now, I noticed something I'd never noticed before about this passage. Maybe this will be new to some of you as well. This is out of John chapter 11, starting with verse 32. Now, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The Lazarus reference that we got earlier, this is a, a Lazarus story here. Uh, Mary had, this Mary had a brother named Lazarus. He died, and Jesus arrives, and he, and he sees everyone sad because Lazarus had died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And here's the passage if everyone, everyone, anyone ever wants to uh, say, do you know any, any, you have memorized any Bible verses? Here you go. Memorize this one. This is verse 35. Jesus wept. That's it. But it's a profound verse. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now, here's, here's what I noticed. I never noticed about that before. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus knew that people who were crying tears of, of pain were going to be having tears of joy. He, he knew that where once there was great sorrow, there was going to be something very different than sorrow. There was going to be peace and hope and all these kind of things. Jesus knew that was coming. So why is Jesus not like, watch this? You know? Because of his love. Even though he knew there was going to be a day when the tears would be gone and Lazarus' death would be no longer, Jesus 
entered into their pain and their sorrow. Because that's what you do when you love somebody. You mourn with those who mourn. You rejoice with those who rejoice. Jesus loved us. This we know. The Bible, it does. It does. Time and time again, it tells us so. And that's, that is a hope-filled concept for folks who are going through tough times. Because Jesus knows there's going to be a day when he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. He knows there's a day where there'll be no more evil. There'll be no more death. He knows it's coming. And for among those who are following him and serving him, we, we have a God that loves and cares. He knows what you're going through. He knows the loneliness. He knows the endurance. He knows all those things. The persecuted church, people who are in, in, in horrible situations for no other reason than they're following uh, Jesus, he, he knows, he cares, he loves. So much so, we, read, we continue to read in John 15, he said this to his followers, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus did just that, didn't he? So we look at the Bible, we know that Jesus loves us. You know what else the Bible tells you besides Jesus loves us? John 3.16 says, God loves us. And some of you need to hear that. Because sometimes, you know, if you grew up in the church or, or hearing about Christianity, you grew up with this idea of Jesus loves us, Jesus loves us, Jesus, God hates me, but Jesus loves us, Jesus, God hates me, Jesus loves us. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. The God who you've sinned against, the God who you have rebelled against, God loves the world. That's a, this is a significant revelation. Significant revelation. And God not only loves us, but he loves us in a sacrificial way. So much so that he was able to give his one and only son. Send his only son. Now, it even goes gets more marvelous than that. Um, here's how a pastor named Tim Keller puts it. He puts it really well. It even goes beyond the idea of, of sending your one and only son. Look at this. It is crucial at this point to remember that the Christian faith has always understood that Jesus Christ is God. God did not then inflict pain on someone else, but rather on the cross absorbed the pain and the violence and the evil of the world into himself. Therefore, the God of the Bible, listen to this, tune in here. Therefore, the God of the Bible is not like the primitive deities who demanded our blood for their wrath to be appeased. i got to pause here for a second. How many religions, that's the case. You have to make it right with that God by what you do. You, you shed your own blood. You shed the blood of an innocent other person. You have to sacrifice something so that this God will be appeased. We couldn't afford the price that needed to be paid to pay the price of that rebellion. God did it by sending his son. God did it. By somehow God being on the cross. Rather, this is a God who becomes human and offers his own lifeblood in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that someday he can destroy all evil without destroying us. What greater demonstration of love could there be? than demonstrating your love by sending your beloved son? What greater act of love could there be than, than the God of all creation humbling himself, 
dying for those who should be dying. Instead, there is no greater love than this that was demonstrated by our God. And that's why um, when there, are, there are times where folks, they, they tend to try to de-emphasize, with good intentions, they try to de-emphasize the cross. And they say, you know, I remember when The Passion of the Christ was coming out, that movie. They're like, why would you show in such detail what the, the suffering isn't? Let's, let's focus instead on the, on the God of hope and, and the God of love. And, and, and it's not that simple, is it? Um, I agree with this, this guy uh, who, who writes, um, John Stott. He writes this, he says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? Boy, isn't that true? This had to happen. This had to happen. And when you reflect on this, when you reflect on what an amazing act of grace this was, possibly the only thing more amazing or hard to understand than God's love is those who would refuse it. And you can refuse it. You can reject it. And that's the second revelation that I believe is right here with this John 3.16 and the passages that follow it. Let's um, please write this down and then let's talk about this. Here's revelation number two that we're going to look at. Our love for the world can prevent us from receiving God's gift of eternal life. That is another vitally important revelation for us to understand. Our love for the world can prevent us from receiving God's gift of eternal life. Once again, let's talk about the world as it, as it was, as John is understanding the world. Here's an, from another of John's writings. He writes this. He says, don't love the world, meaning that which is in opposition to God, or that which is twisted, or that which is fallen, or that which is not as it should be. Don't love the, the, that or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him or her. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, that is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, they abide forever. We can choose to love the world and to try to hang on to it. And that can keep us from embracing instead the love of God. Here's a a way another person put it down. I've got a lot of quotes here today, but it just some of these are so good. Um, this, this guy, D.A. Carlson, writes, Christians are not to love the world with the selfish love of participation. God loves the world with the selfless, costly love of redemption. Let me unpack that a little bit. So often, our love for the world is a selfish thing. Our love for the world is, I want more. Selfish love results in abuse. Selfish love results in, in horrible things. Selfish love takes, 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 takes. Or twists. It takes something good that God's given us in one context, we put it in another context. It makes it unholy. God, when He loves the world, He wants to love the world with a, a love that changes things for the better. And that's why when God's love is true in us, then we're able to love the world because now our love for the world is not I want, I want, I want, but rather I want to help transform and bring something beautiful out of something 
that has fallen. So that's the kind of love we're talking about. So a, a selfish, greedy love for the world can result in us um, rejecting God's love. And if I were to poll people in this room, my guess is that almost 100% of us, if I was to specifically say, who do you love more, God or the world? Most everyone would say God. But the three challenging questions that you hear come out from my mouth a lot that really convict me are questions like this. Um, what comes first when it, when it comes to your time, the time that God's given you? Who, who gets your first best and who gets your leftovers? Are you living in such a way like God is the Lord of the time he's given you? Or are you living like, no, I am God of my time and I'll fit God in when I can. You know, who's, who's Lord? You or God? Or your coach? Or whatever, you know? And, and after time, um, the talents that God's given you, the gifts and abilities, who gets your first best? Bible says, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as serving who? The Lord, not men. If, if you can, you can, there is no secular or sacred division when it comes to how, how, how you're supposed to live your life. So if you are, if you find yourself in a, in a, in a, in a job situation where it's not an overtly Christian um, job, can you still serve God there? Yeah. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. You know, serve the Lord, not men. If you are submitting instead to some other power higher than God, who's, who's Lord over your time and your talents? And then third, the resources he's given us. Who gets your best? Who gets your leftovers? You know, you ask questions like that, you're like, whoa. But we need to ask questions like that. We need to be honest and say, who's on the throne? Who is the king? In our life, is it God or is it someone else? Is it someone else? All right, let's go back to John. Three, we start on 16. Let's go a little bit farther now. We'll just go one more verse and then we'll take one more chunk and that'll be it for today. John 3.17 goes on to say this. For God did not send his son. And this is, this is so much, there's so much hope here. So much hope here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, confession time, I usually, when I read through this part of John, I just kind of go right over 17. But I didn't go right over 17 this time. I reflected on it. I looked at what some others had written, and they brought up a great point. Some of the other scholars said, hey, when Jesus came into the world this time, when he, he came in, he didn't do the decisive judgment that one day he will do. A day is coming... In fact, we're going to look at this the week after Easter. A day is coming when Jesus comes back and it, it's judgment time, as in no more second chances. Those who are walking in the light, those who are walking in darkness, that day's coming. Thank God it didn't come yet. When Jesus stepped in, he stepped in in such a way where he brought light into the situation, but it was not to condemn. It, was to, you know, it, was, it gives us an opportunity. We can now respond to this. We still have a chance. To respond. Here's how it continues. Look, look at the imagery that's used here. Um, John 3, 18 through 21. Whoever believes in him, they're not condemned. You have a chance. You have a chance. You can believe in him and not be condemned. But whoever does not believe, they're condemned already. 
Because they've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. I want to hit pause real quick. I do this, so again, I'm, I'm grouping myself in here, but what a stupid thing to do. The thing, when you think of it in terms of this, the things that we let keep us from God, how stupid is that? Because the things that we let keep us from God, they don't love us the way God loves us. That thing that we say, I just can't give this up. Why not? Does it love you the way God loves you? That boyfriend, that girlfriend who's tempting you to do things that you know you shouldn't be doing, I can't give them up. Do they love you the way God loves you? That opportunity that you know you should not seize, that thing that's compelling you, does it love you the way God loves you? No. Sometimes we just need to cut through stuff, right? And just look at it the way it is. That doesn't make it easy to be released from things that are holding us back, but, but at least it helps frame it the right way. That thing that's keeping you in darkness, does it love you the way God loves you? But yet, we choose darkness rather than light. Everyone who does wicked things, they hate the light. They don't come into the light, lest their works be exposed. But whoever does what is true, they come into the light. Um, this is, again, this is not an isolated, out-of-context thing. Here's another of John's writings. Elsewhere, he puts it this way. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, look at his promise. He gave the right to become children of God because he so loved the world. You know, and every, every so often, not every so often, it's very common that the enemy will whisper into your head, yeah, but that's true for you, but not for me because you don't know what I've done. You don't know all the things that I've done. I've done some horrible things. And the enemy comes in and goes, well, God may love them, but, but he doesn't love you. And let me reveal why I am a horrible counselor because if that was you, I might say something like this, maybe with more tact, but here's the thought that occurred to me as I was wrestling with that. What about the person who's saying, I can't think of what I've done. God can't love me. Here's the thought that came to my mind. Don't you disrespect God like that. Don't you disrespect God like that. When you look at the sacrifice he made on your behalf, your sin is greater than that sacrifice. The thing that you did that you think is wrong, that is so bad that God's, the sacrifice of God's son isn't enough to atone for it. That God dying, God dying on a cross, that's not big enough to cover your sin? It's big enough. That's amenable. Even if you're Swedish, that is amenable. <laughs> Isn't it? It's big enough. God loved the world, and we looked at that. The context of the world is people in opposition to God. God loved even those in opposition to him so much that he made the sacrifice for all time. No other sacrifice will ever be needed because that's how great the sacrifice was. And for those who receive it, to those who believe in, and that's key, believe in his name, gave the right to become children of God. You can believe in your head. That's not believe in. The demons believe, the Bible says, and shudder. Here it says, those who believe in, believe in. In English, it could mean believe into. It is stepping in, saying, I'm going to step in faith. I'm going to put my trust in this going forward. 
we had a great example of this, and this is the story I want to close with. If we could have the worship band come up. We're going to, do, we're going to end a little bit differently today. And it, it came out of result of hearing the story. I was at Port-au-Prince Fellowship, um, and it was a church in, in Port-au-Prince, English-speaking church, where a lot of the missionaries come to, whether they were born in Haiti or born in some other country. And here are all these people. We had an Australian pastor, a worship band made up of people from who knows where all they were from. Um, it was a beautiful thing. And, we're, and, and the pastor who got up to, 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 um, to, to speak, he's a guy named John. He heads up um, Heartline Ministries, where Ryan and Melissa are serving. The guy, he, he, he gave a little bit of his story. He goes, I was so strung out on drugs. I was just a mess. My life was a complete train wreck. I wasn't anything resembling anything that, that, that looked like a, a follower of Jesus Christ. Wasn't even professing that. And uh, he found himself completely penniless, hitchhiking across the United States, which he says is wickedly overrated, he said, his words. And anyway, he, he just, at a place where he had nowhere to look but up, someone shared this truth to him, and he'd never really heard it before, at least with his heart. And he responded to it. Now God's using him in Haiti to do these amazing things. Well, he's the guy that shared this story, and I think that's beautiful just coming from him. But here's the story he shared. He said, there was this kid, and a kid was sitting in church. And as he was sitting in church, he was listening to these amazing words of amazing grace. And something in him said, oh, I want to respond to God. And as he was singing these songs, he was hearing these songs that were just, oh, it felt as though he was, he was able to share them directly to God. And he said, God, oh, I want to respond to you. And when the offering time came, he said, oh, this is a way I can respond. I, I can give God what I have. And, and and as the basket's coming by, he's kind of frantically doing this because he doesn't have any money. So the basket passes, and the kid is just like, what can I do? I don't have any money. What can I give to God? And so the, the basket's making it all the way to the back of the, of the, of the church, and, and then the boy gets an idea. And he, and he goes back, and he finds the usher. And he whispers something in the usher's ear. And the usher kind of looks at him like, really? The kid's like, so the usher takes the offering basket, sets it down on the ground. And the little boy takes one foot, puts it in the offering basket, takes his other foot, puts it in the offering basket, says, here I am, God. You have it all. Take my whole life. It's yours. And then John said this, as he was talking, he said, and now we've spared no expense, and in front of every one of you is a basket. And we all look down, there's no basket. He goes, do you see it? We're like, oh, yeah, we see it. And he goes, it's just your size, isn't it? We're like, yeah, just our size. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to put one foot in that basket and put the other foot in that basket and say to God, here I am. How can I not respond after you gave everything for me? How can I not respond with everything I have? So here's why today's going to be a little different. Normally, when we gather around the Lord's table, we have ushers that, that come forward and tell you, now, come forward. No ushers today. No ushers today. And I'm not going to use the word when you're ready to come forward, because who is ever ready to come forward? We're never ready to come forward. In fact, 
for me in the first service, when I came forward for communion, I'm like, I'm not even going to hesitate now because I'm not going to, I'm just, go. You know? Usually I'm like, okay, prayer, center, all that. And those things are good. But I'm like, just go. You know? And maybe that's some of you. But what I'd like you to do before you come forward for communion, the one thing I would ask, and in a moment we'll have you all stand, is that you would take one foot physically, put it in your basket, which we have spared no expense, to put at your feet, take your other foot, and consciously say to God, here I am, without condition, everything which you first gave to me and, and purchased at a great price is yours. Everything. Take it. Even that which I'm not strong enough to give to you yet. Take it. It's yours. And after you've done that, we would welcome you to come forward and receive this reminder of what Jesus did and the strength for the, the journey that's to come. So it's different. The way we do it normally, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good. We're learning prayers together. We're saying these things out loud together. The Bible speaks of order. You know, so, so I'm not trying to say that's wrong the way we do it. I just think it's important for us to not always do things the same. And so today, I encourage you to stand. And when, you're, when the time is right, take one step in, take the other step in, and come forward. Let's celebrate what God's done. Whether it's the first time you've ever done this, whether it's, okay, I'm back. Thanks for calling me home. Or whether, for some of you, this is a daily thing. There are some people, this is how they start every day. Not necessarily with a basket, but they, every day they consciously say, God, I'm yours. Use me as you will. What other response should there be to the amazing grace shown to us? So please stand. Let me pray for you, and then we'll have our communion service come forward. We'll serve them. And when they're in place, anytime after that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you again. Sounds so empty. <laughs> when we consider your amazing grace. Holy Spirit, we pray right now that you will cast out all things that are not of you. Open hearts and minds. Obliterate anything that stands between people and receiving amazing grace today. Lord, for those who, who, who aren't familiar with your message, God, you can download directly into their spirit, into their heart, your call to come forth and receive this new life. For those who've walked away, God, call them back. Whether it was a long way away or what appears to be a short way away, Lord, call them back so that they can completely today redevote themselves to serving you joyfully. And for those saints who, this is just part of what they do every day, may they join with joy today as they see brothers and sisters around them doing the same thing simply and humbly saying, here I am, Father. Everything I have is yours. You purchased me back at a great price. Help me to follow you. And Lord, as we come forward to receive communion, oh, Lord, take and make these, um, these elements for us, your body and your blood. Remind us of the great price you paid. Remind us of your amazing love for us as we receive from you now in this moment.